In 2005, there was a book written which was seeking to explain the condition of the church today, in general. And they described the church as being therapeutic, moralistic deism. Therapeutic, moralistic deism. They say, in general, the condition of the church in the United States of America is that people go to church so that they can get free therapy, so they can learn how to be good, and to wait for God to get back from vacation. I don't know about the church in this area so much, but I do know in mainline denominations that that's very much what is taking place. It's a therapeutic, moralistic deism. The preaching is for therapy. It's a preaching of moralism, namely do this, don't do this, try and get better. And then the work of God is undermined in the whole process. Well, what is the remedy then to this therapeutic, moralistic deism? It's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, as we finish up our series on the kingdom of heaven, we turn now to the subject of the message of the kingdom. And the message of the kingdom can be wrapped up in that word, the gospel. The gospel. So what have we looked at so far? We've looked at the time frame of the kingdom. That the kingdom is already, but it is not yet. We've looked at the king of the kingdom, that Christ is reigning over his kingdom right now. We've looked at the citizens of the kingdom, and we have seen that there are people who are citizens right now. And they, they are characterized by righteousness through faith and by righteousness of obedience unto God as a pattern in their lives. We have also then looked at the law of the kingdom. That's what we looked at last week. That even though the gospel is so glorious and we're saved by grace through faith, there is yet a law for God's people. And those are the laws of the king. Well, I want to conclude this series of messages then with a consideration of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of the kingdom. Look over at Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, beginning with verse 14. Now after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what is the message of Christ? What did Christ come preaching? He came preaching, repent and believe in the gospel. So today we're going to focus in on those two concepts, repentance and the gospel. We're going to start with considering the gospel and then we'll talk about repentance and how that fits in with the gospel. Some other passages there where we see the message of the kingdom preached. Matthew 3 verse 2 
John the Baptist came saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew 4.17 From that time Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Luke 8.1 Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him. Let's consider this gospel. The word gospel in the Greek language, Koine Greek, in which the Bible was written, was probably not a hyper-spiritual word during Jesus' day. However, it has become a significant word in Christianity because it's given significance in the Word of God itself. But I think that we can sometimes hyper-spiritualize certain terminology while perhaps missing what it really means and what it's really saying. And we can often miss the point as we turn the words of Scripture into jargon and we hyper-spiritualize them that the New Testament was written in the common language of the people. Koine Greek was not the language of the scholars. It was the language of the everyday folk, the common people. So, God had very graciously and very wisely given the original writings of Scripture in the common language of the people. So, men like Wycliffe, and Tyndale, and Martin Luther, who who were persecuted for wanting to translate the scriptures into the language of people, were following the very heart of God. Because God had written the scriptures in the language of the people. So, what is the gospel, the word gospel, which in the Greek is euangelion, what does that mean, literally, and what would that have meant in the common language of the people? Literally, it meant good news. Good news. You know, I I once read from a version of the Bible from this pulpit, and the passage that I read from translated that word as good news. Afterward, I had a, a man come up to me. He's not here any longer. He came up to me and he said, I want you to know, Pastor, that I am making a list of everywhere that your translation differs from my translation. And he said, and he took issue with the translation, translating it as good news rather than translating it as gospel in that instance. So I talked to him for a minute and I explained to him, well, did you know that that word literally in the Greek meant good news? And that's what the people in Jesus' time would have known this to me was good news. And he responded something to the effect of, yes, well, but, you know, it may be good news about getting a car and getting a car that works, but that's a far cry from the gospel. And you know what? There's a bit of a point there. Can you see, can you see the point there? Here's the main point. What the good news is about determines just how good the news really is, right? What 
the news is about determines how good the news really is. Well, this word gospel, according to the Erdman's Bible Dictionary, is from the word euangelion in the Greek, meaning good news. In the Latin, it's evangelium. In Anglo-Saxon, which we trace this word back to, it was a word God spell. So you can hear gospel coming from that. God spell, which literally meant good tidings. They go on to say good news is what the gospel is. Specifically, the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. In classical Greek, the term originally designated the reward given to a messenger of good tidings and later came to mean the good news itself. Now, the Bible wasn't written in classical Greek. That's what we would find many of the classics in, right? Like Homer and Plato. You know, those, those works. Well, it means good news. And as we know, good news comes in varying degrees, right? But what the people would have heard here was repent and believe in the good news about the kingdom. Now that's kind of a step up from other good news, we might say. We, we can all think of things that would be good news. Good news! She had her baby. Good news! They got their car fixed. Good news! The cancer has gone into remission. Those are all good things, right? Good news! Glorious news! This word would have been used by people to describe joyful, beautiful, positive news. As a matter of fact, there was one instance in history, the Roman proconsul, Paulus Fabius Maximus, honored Caesar Augustus by reckoning Caesar's birthday as the beginning of the new year. So he switched the calendar around, made Caesar's birthday the beginning of the new year, and then pronounced that to be euangelion. Good news for all the people. And interesting, in the Greek-English lexicon of the New Testament, says, in a number of languages, the expression, the gospel or the good news, must be rendered by a phrase instead of just a word. A phrase, for example, like, news that makes one happy, or information that causes one joy. Or words that bring smiles. Or a message that causes the heart to be sweet. So am I trying to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ by bringing this out about it being good news? No, not at all. Because it is the news itself which determines just how good it is. And how beautiful it is. And this is the news. When Jesus burst onto the scene and began preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and believe the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom, what he's saying there is that God's predetermined plan to redeem humanity and to save his people has now begun. It has dawned. It is the dawning of the glorious messianic redemptive era. The kingdom is now here. The king is walking the face of the earth. Believe the good news. Believe the good news.
this word, evangelion, the gospel, the good news, is found more than 75 times in the New Testament. And it indicates a distinctly Christian connotation. It says in the New Bible Dictionary. The gospel is the good news that God in Jesus Christ has fulfilled his promises to Israel. And that a way of salvation has been opened to all, they say, and I inserted, to all who will believe. They go on to say the gospel is not to be set over against the Old Testament as if God had changed his way of dealing with man, but is the fulfillment of Old Testament promise. Jesus himself saw in the prophecies of Isaiah a description of his own ministry. And we'll look at that a little more in detail. But you see, there had been many promises of a Messiah that would come and would save his people from their sins. And our Christ has come. And we are citizens, whether we're Jew or Greek. And so the gospel carries that connotation in the scriptures. But let's jump back for just a moment and look to the Old Testament. As I mentioned once before, there's a Greek New Testament that's available, and in that Greek New Testament, it puts in italics, you know that funny little sideways print, italics? It puts in italics all of the direct quotations or allusions to the Old Testament, and there are italics on almost every single page in that Greek New Testament. Well, as we look back to the Old Testament as well, and I've mentioned this before, we can make connections when we are studying the words in the original language. We can make connections between the Old and the New Testaments because there was a translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, and it was done way back, it was either, I think, it was either 200 B.C. or A.D. 200. I don't remember which, but I think it was B.C. It was actually before the New Testament was even written then. There was this Bible which translated the Hebrew into Greek. And we can make connections there by looking at the Greek words that are used to translate the Hebrew words. In other words, when we look at this Bible, we can find words like euangelion, which is in the New Testament, in this Old Testament translation. And then we can look and see what the Hebrew word was that it was translating, and we can make conceptual connections between the Old and the New Testament that way. As we look back to the Old Testament... Harper's Bible Dictionary points out to us that the background for the noun, euangelion, is found in the Old Testament where the verbal form to bring good news or to announce good news appears rather than the noun. So, the verbal form was the focus in the Old Testament, namely to bring good news or to announce good news. So in passages like Isaiah 40, verse 9, 41:27, 52:7, and 61:1, the messenger announces the good news of Israel's redemption from exile. And then he goes on to say in Luke 4, 18-19, Jesus takes up the words of Isaiah 61, 1-2, to announce his glad tidings. Do you remember what it says there in Luke? Jesus was in his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, 
And he opened up the scroll to the passage in Isaiah said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has sent me to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he went on and mentioned several other things there. To preach the gospel, the good news, quoting from Isaiah. There's an example of where this connection is made so that we could see how it was used in the Old Testament. Turn over to 2 Samuel chapter 18. 2 Samuel chapter 18. Remember I mentioned earlier that this word in classical Greek, first of all, was used to describe the messenger who brought good news and then began to describe the message itself. So, maybe it would be like the, the mailman today. Do you guys think your mailman brings good news? Sometimes. Sometimes not. Do you call him a, a messenger of good news? He's a deliverer of good news? Maybe you think more about the UPS guy like that. Usually the UPS guy is bringing something good, right? Something that you purchased or if he shows up and you're like, well, we didn't order anything and somebody sent you a gift through UPS, wow, there's somebody that brings good news. That's the way it used to be understood and then it became more and more to describe the message itself. But here we have an instance in the Old Testament of a messenger and this messenger is seen coming and King David pronounces he must bring good news then. If you remember, David had a son named Absalom. He wasn't a good son. Anyway, Absalom had caused many problems. He had, he had gotten many of David's citizens to join up with him. He ousted his dad. And then Joab went back and began to fight with, with Absalom. Absalom then ended up being killed. David did not want his son to be killed. But Joab ended up slaying David's son Absalom. Well, after the, the battle is over, David's folks are back in control, but Absalom is now dead. Then it says in verse 19, Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said, Let me now run and take the news to the king, how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. And Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day, but today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to the Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. Okay, they didn't have cell phones back then. They couldn't text. But the battle's over and the person's dead, you know, Absalom's dead, all that kind of stuff. So they send out runners. This guy, Ahimaaz, wanted to run. We're going to see that he was like, let me run, let me run, I want to run. For some reason here, Joab didn't want to let him run. By the way, any of you young guys, are you like that? If there's a message to be delivered, you're like, let me run. I'll tell it, I'll go. I'll take the message. Well, Joab didn't want Ahimaaz to go. Um, I, don't, I don't know specifically why. It doesn't say here. Perhaps since Joab knew that he had gone against David and had killed Absalom, and that Ahimaaz was 
a man of good character and well-known, but he didn't want to send him, but sent this Cushite instead. We don't even have the Cushite's name here. Perhaps that's why Joab is doing it, because it's going to end up being some bad news to David, even though David doesn't know that in the first place. Perhaps that is it. Perhaps the Cushite had been instructed, don't tell David about Absalom, which we see at first he doesn't. We don't know for certain there. But we know that Ahimaaz, in verse 22, the son of Zadok, said it again to Joab, but whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. So he wanted to go. He wanted to run. So Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? I've already sent this guy out. Why do you want to run? He says, but whatever happens, let me run. And so he said to him, run. Then Ahimaaz ran by way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates, and the watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes, and looked, and there was a man running alone. Then the watchman cried out and told the king, and the king said, If he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. Then the watchman saw another man running, and the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, There is another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. And the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. And I need to correct myself here. We'll see that it was the Cushite that actually ended up telling the king that Absalom was dead. Because Ahimaaz outran the Cushite and got there first. But notice this, the king said, He is a good man and comes with good news. There's our connection there. The messenger, the messenger is known to be a good man, and so David is saying, based on the circumstances, this must be good news. Now, it was partially good news, partially bad news, because Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well, then he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord the king. The king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. And the king said, Turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside and stood still. Just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news. There is our connection again. My lord the king, For the Lord has avenged you this day of all those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, Is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to harm you be like that young man. But there we see those couple of places where the good news, the messenger, and saying this is good news. That is the verbal form to bring good news of that connection with the Greek language then in our word gospel, which means the good news. I want to read something here from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And it says that most significant for understanding the New Testament concept, euangelion, is Deuteronomy and Isaiah. They expect the great victory of Yahweh, His accession, His kingly rule, the dawn of the new age. In this connection... The Neva 
Sayer. The one who brings good news in the Hebrew is called the Meva Sayer. The Meva Sayer is of the greatest importance. He is the herald who precedes the people on its return from Babylon to Zion. All Jerusalem stands on the towers and walls expecting the train of returning exiles. Then they see the messenger, the Mevaseer, on the top of the hill. Peace and salvation. Yahweh is king, he cries to them. From Isaiah 52.7 He proclaims the victory of Yahweh over the whole world. Yahweh is now returning to Zion to rule. The messenger publishes it and the new age begins. He does not declare that the rule of God will soon commence. He proclaims it, he publishes it, and it comes into effect. Salvation comes with the word of proclamation. By the fact that he declares the restoration of Israel, the new creation of the world, the inauguration of the eschatological age, he brings them to pass. For the word is not just breath and sound, it is effective power. Because Yahweh puts his words on lips of his messengers. He it is who speaks through them. With his word, he creates the world. He shapes history. He rules the world. The watchers on the walls hear the word and repeat it with rejoicing. It rings through the city and messengers carry it through the land. Yahweh is king. Behold your God. A new era begins also for the nations. For Yahweh is a God of the Gentiles as well as in Israel. So we consider this and we see, look over at Isaiah chapter 51 here. Where we see what was just described. Isaiah 51, or 52, excuse me, beginning with verse 1. Isaiah 52.1 says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For the uncircumcised and the unclean shall no longer come to you. Shake yourself from the dust, arise, sit down, O Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bonds of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, You have sold yourselves for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at first into Egypt to dwell there, then the Assyrian oppressed them without cause. Now therefore, what have I here, says the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? Those who rule over them, make them wail, says the Lord, and my name is blasphemed continually every day. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. Now notice this verse 7. Does this sound familiar to you? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the Mevaseer, the messenger who brings the good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. Your watchmen shall lift up their voices. With their voices they shall sing together. For they shall see eye to eye when the Lord brings back Zion. Break forth into joy. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. 
He has redeemed Jerusalem. And then we go on a little bit further, and what do we see? Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, verse 12. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Who is the servant? It is Christ. It is Christ. And then it goes on into Isaiah 53, that beautiful, beautiful passage. And that verse there, Isaiah 52, verse 7, that's directly quoted in the New Testament, isn't it? Romans chapter 10. The Apostle Paul is saying, How shall they hear without a preacher? And he quotes this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. So do you see do you see what's happening here? Do you see what's happening? In Israel? Two thousand years ago? A Sayer, rugged, clothed in camel hair, eating locusts and wild honey, comes out of the desert. And he says, Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the inspired writer of the scripture says that this is the one who came to make straight the way of the Lord. This is the one who is the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So here was the Mevaser proclaiming the good news that the king is coming. You know what the practice was back in those days? When a king went out to travel. The workers went out well in advance of him and they smoothed out the roads. They filled in the potholes. They knocked down the bumps. They removed all the obstacles. So what was John the Baptist, the Mevaseer, proclaiming here? The king is coming. Who is that king? That's the king Jesus. Jesus is coming. The kingdom is dawning, he's saying. The kingdom of heaven is here. And the long-awaited king was near. And then the king himself bursts on the scene. The king who is the greatest Nebuchadnezzar. The greatest one to proclaim the good news. And he preaches this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Believe in the gospel of the kingdom. And then what do we see? We see him whisked into the desert by the Holy Spirit after he is baptized by John the Baptist. We see him go three rounds with our arch enemy, Satan himself. And we see him thrash Satan in the wilderness. We see him then go forth and preach this gospel. And then we see him rejected, crucified, But what was he preaching? The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the good news of the kingdom. And you know, when he first went into that synagogue at Nazareth, and you realize this was his hometown. 
This was his hometown. It's like if one of you young men grow up here in the Yellville area and then you hit 33 years old and you start preaching and you go into a local church and you begin to preach in that local church people get so mad at you that they take you and want to throw you over a cliff. These people literally tried to throw Jesus over the cliff. What did he say? He stood up there in Luke chapter 4, verse 16. He came to Nazareth, it says, where he had been brought up. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. He was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. When he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus Christ had just proclaimed Jubilee. Jubilee has come in the dawning of this kingdom. I am here to liberate the captives. What was Jubilee? Every 50 years. Any who were slaves were set free. Anyone who had debts, the debts were forgiven them. Jesus had come, the king, proclaiming the kingdom and ushering in spiritual jubilee. How did they respond after he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down? The eyes of all of them in the synagogue were fixed on him and he began to say to them, Today the scriptures that build in your hearing. So they all bore witness to him first, marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, but then began to, they began to say, But isn't this Joseph's boy? <laughs> Wait a minute here. He can't be the king. He can't be the Messiah. He's claiming it, yeah, not, without a doubt, but no way. I mean, I saw him grow up. And then he says some things that they didn't like very much and then they grabbed him and wanted to throw him over a cliff but it wasn't time for him to die. So he wouldn't do it. It wasn't time. It was a foretaste of the ultimate rejection which was to come. His own friends tried to cast him off a cliff to his death. But what was the ultimate rejection that was to come? His own father turned his face upon him and then smiled upon him after Christ completed the work and, and he was raised from the dead. Jesus is the supreme Nevisayer. He is the supreme word itself, the message itself. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And the good news is good news about him and about his work. He was called to preach the kingdom. And then he was rejected by his own people and ultimately his own father for a time. And then he finished his work and he was enthroned in glory. So what, what is our responsibility then regarding the evangelium? Regarding the good news? Remember the other half of that it says repent and believe the good news. We are to repent 
we are to believe the message of the kingdom, the gospel message of the kingdom, or to preach the message of the kingdom then unto others and proclaim it, this gospel which is the good news. Did you notice in those verses that I read from the gospels, John came and he said, what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came, what did he say? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The apostles, what did they preach? Repent, and believe in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So what commanded to repent? There's another word that we all know, but what does it mean? What does it mean to repent? What does it mean to repent in the context here of repent and believe the gospel? Does this word repent here in the context of believing the gospel mean that we have to get our lives cleaned up before we can believe the gospel and before we can be citizens of the kingdom of heaven? Is that what it means? I hope not. That's what it means. We're all toast. We're all in trouble, right? But what does it mean to repent? Well, in its, it's, in its basic form, it means to have a change of mind. It's a Greek word, metanoia, and it means to change your mind. But, it goes a little bit deeper than that in the scriptures. It means to have a change of mind which results in a change of life. To have a change of mind which then results in a change of life. But notice the progression there. It's not changing the life and then changing the mind, but it's the change of mind that then results in the change of life. So we have to have a change of mind. What do we have to have a change of mind about in this process of faith and of believing the good news about the gospel. What do we have to change our minds about? Think about that with me for a minute. If someone's going to display that they have true biblical faith in the gospel, the good news of who Christ is and his work, it means they also have to have a change of mind. They have to repent. But what do they have to change their mind about? What did you change your mind about when you became a Christian compared to before when you weren't a Christian? Well, maybe it depends on whether you were brought up in church, right? If you were brought up in church, you may have, you may have known a whole lot of facts about the gospel. But something changed when you truly became a Christian, right? Well, for one thing, Somebody has to have a change of mind about their own goodness, don't they? Somebody has to stop thinking that they're good if they're truly going to repent and have faith in the gospel. The problem with the non-believers out there is they think that they're good. That's the biggest problem that sinners have. The biggest problem we have before we're sinners is believing that we're good. You talk to... 95% of the people out there in the United States of America, and many who even claim to be Christians, 
and they think they're okay with God because they're a good person. Is that what the Bible teaches? Jesus said there's only one good, and that's God. We're only good if we are in Christ and have His goodness counted as our goodness. So we have to have a change of mind about our goodness. We have to have a change of mind, perhaps, about how to be saved. But it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, maybe we knew that because we grew up in church and we would never for a minute say that we're saved by our own works. But we have to really believe it in the heart. We have to have a change of mind about submission to King Jesus. True faith recognizes that Jesus is God and bows the knee to King Jesus. Repentance and as a result of God changing our hearts and giving us a new heart will result in our recognizing that Jesus is God. If we deny Jesus is God, we're not saved. Jesus told to some Jews there, he said, you must believe that I am or you will perish in your sins. So we have to have a change of mind about Jesus and who he is and that he is God and knowing that he is God demands that he is the sovereign. And we must recognize we're not the sovereign and we have to bow to his authority. We have to have a change of mind about good news. About the greatest news. And what it is. It's not health. It's not wealth. It's not prosperity. It's Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we have to have a change of mind that that's what we desire and that's what we want is Christ himself to be ours. And that's more important to us than other things. Think about the kingdom and the parables of the kingdom. So the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a great treasure in a field and he went and he sold everything that he had so he could purchase that, right? It's like a pearl of great price. And the merchant had to have that pearl. Repenting is having a change of mind about the good news. And then, the fruit of true repentance and the fruit of of true faith is the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of a good apple tree? It's apples. We who are regenerated, which means made able by God to have faith in Him and to love Him and to trust in Christ, we who are regenerated are regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit indwells us as believers. And there's some things in the Bible that are called the fruit of the Spirit, right? Do you know what those are? The fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22-23 The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such, there is no law. Those things are evidences that somebody has repented and they are evidences that somebody has faith when they display the fruit of the Spirit. 
Now, here are a couple things we we got to remember regarding this. One, we don't earn salvation by repenting. Okay? We don't earn our salvation by repenting. We're commanded to repent, but we don't earn our salvation by repenting. Folks, this is so very, very important. This is so important. It is so important for us not to miscommunicate to people the gospel. But it's it's so easy to do. It's so easy to miscommunicate to people. Even if we talk about repentance and we tell them that they have to repent to be saved, what's what's the danger there? The danger there would be somehow communicating to them that they've got to do some good stuff and get their life in order and then God's going to save them, right? You see how dangerous that is? The Apostle Paul said, that's a damnable heresy. That's not the gospel. Oh, so we have to be so careful. We don't repent in order to earn our salvation. As a matter of fact, repentance is a gift of God. (laughs) Repentance is a gift of God. Like faith and the ability to have faith is a gift of God Himself. And so, we don't repent to earn salvation because we can't even earn repentance. If, we, if, if you are saved today and if you have repented and had a change of mind about your own goodness and a change of mind about how to be saved and a change of mind about submission to the King and a change of mind about the good news... It's not because you repented and then God granted you that, but it's that God granted you that repentance and you had a change of mind about those things as a, as a result. As a result. Is, that, is it biblical to say that repentance is a gift? Look at 2 Timothy 2.25. 2 Timothy 2, verse 25. And oh, how we need to be so cautious when we present the gospel to people. That we don't ever, ever, ever give them anything to indicate that they can be saved by what they do. But only that it's salvation through faith. You need to believe in Christ. But that does mean a change of mind about these things. But it's by the grace of God. What does it say here? 2 Timothy 2.25 And humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth. God has to grant repentance for us to know the truth. So having a change of mind about the good news which leads to a change of life is the result of God regenerating the heart. He makes us alive, first of all. He gives us spiritual life. He gives us the ability to repent and to have faith first. Those that are not alive don't have that ability whatsoever. Those who are not regenerated, those who are dead in trespasses and sins have no ability to repent or have true faith. So 
So God gives people the spiritual ability to love the king more than themselves and more than their sin. And here's where I want to make a clarification regarding last week. And we're going to wrap up with this. I talked about the importance of communicating clearly. So, I record my messages and go back and listen over them again. And there's sometimes where I'll hit things like, hmm, don't know if that came across exactly the way I intended to communicate it. I said at the end of last sermon, and if you remember, it was about the law of the kingdom. I said at the end of the last sermon that the law of the king directs us how to have joy. Joy in obedience to the king. And here's where, here's where I got thinking about this. I don't want to, and I didn't mean to for a moment, communicate that we have to be sinless to have true joy. What I meant to communicate was that if we are knowingly, willfully, presumptuously rebelling against the law of God, then we're not going to have true, deep joy. True joy is only found in obedience to Christ, not outside of that. But here's where I want to clarify that statement. We're sinners, aren't we? Are you a sinner? I'm a sinner. I could stop at the end of every day and think back and I could find ways that I've rebelled against my king. Does that mean that I can never have true joy? Does that mean you can never have true joy? No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Not at all. Consider being a sinner doesn't mean having to be miserable. Why is that? It's because there's a gospel. And the gospel is the good news that we are forgiven of our sins. The gospel is the good news that we are forgiven of every sin. Every sin in the past, every sin in the present, and every sin we will ever commit. And yes, there should be sorrow when we sin against God. But it's a fleeting sorrow because when we think about how God has forgiven us, will that not bring us great joy? And should that not bring us even more joy? You know, it's a glorious truth and there's a glorious balance in the Scriptures about what this looks like, but... Consider this for a moment. Before salvation, we were like a condemned criminal. A condemned criminal who is condemned for assassinating the son of the king. A condemned criminal condemned for assassinating the son of the king who is lying on a filthy cot in a prison starving to death and so emaciated and rot and worn from starvation that we can't even rise out of bed. And then the king comes in. And he comes in and he miraculously heals us so that we're back to strength. And he frees us from the prison. 
But not only does he free us, he adopts us into his own family. Not only does he free us and adopt us into his own family, but he makes us an honored citizen in his kingdom. Ah, but then we go on and we squander the time of this king. We waste the resources of this king. We violate the laws of this king. So what does he do? Every time we violate those laws, squander those resources, waste that time, we are brought into the courtroom and we are forgiven 100% and we are sent back out. We're never stripped of our honor in the, in the kingdom of heaven as citizens of the kingdom. We're never rejected and kicked out of the family. So does that not bring us joy? Even when we sin, does that not point us to Christ and we have true joy? As the Apostle Paul said, he said, where sin is, grace what? Grace abounds. Grace abounds. Now, he went on to say, we shouldn't sin so that grace abounds. Grace abounds. God's, God's already forgiven us for every sin we'll ever commit. That's a huge abundance of grace right there. We don't, we don't need to try and make God produce more grace by sinning, right? So let's try and sin as little as possible. But when we do sin, God covers it. He forgives that debt. We're like that man. And we're never, ever, ever condemned. Freely forgiven. Freely forgiven. So let's not forget about the grace abounding part of the gospel. Particularly for those of you who get dragged down by the feeling of guilt and weight for your sin. And it threatens to flood over you in darkness and drive you to despair. Don't forget the abounding grace in the gospel. And as Pastor John Piper said, let the freedom to fail give you the fearlessness to fight against sin. Because we could get so tied up in the fear that we're going to fail against God that we don't even try. We just say, what's the bother? What's the use? What difference does it make? I can't do it right anyway. But let the freedom to fail, namely, that if we step out and try and be obedient to God and we fall and we fall again and we get up and keep trying to fall again, that the gospel covers it. That we're forgiven every time and we're never rejected. Grace abounds to us sinners. Oh, my friends, this is the good news. This is the good news. That we desperate, dastardly, depraved sinners were forgiven. We're friends with God. We're favored and honored citizens in the kingdom. Christ is the King. He reigns and rules. And His message is the gospel. It's the good news. Is this good news? Is this good news? Is it good news for a good season, the Christmas season? 
Is it good news for the middle of summer? Is it good news in fall? Is it good news in winter? Is it good news every day of the week for all eternity? Yes, it is. Glorious good news. Let's believe in the gospel. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for this glorious, glorious message of Christ and His work which has secured our salvation. And I pray, Father, that we'll preach the gospel to ourselves and our families and our friends and our community day in and day out. Oh, how we need this. How easy it can be to become despairing when we sin and find ourselves in darkness. But may we repent, have a change of mind about our love for that sin. and May we always look to Christ and look to the Gospel and then rejoice ten times over again that you have forgiven our sins, blotted them out, wiped them away, in your account book so that we will never be rejected. We praise you, give you glory, and ask that you would give us joy as we consider this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.